verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 10. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they were dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is common that when our faith and piety are strong, is also when we are confronted with adversity. When the road is smooth and everything seems to just fall into place, all the cards that have been dealt to us make up a winning hand, is when we forget that there are more cards 
in the deck. And unfortunately, we are often dealt those cards suddenly. Tragedy tends to strike when everything seems to be normal. Uh, many of you remember the morning of September 11th, uh, 2001, when all seemed normal until 8.45 a.m., when tragedy struck. Most of us have had the experience of hearing bad news or losing someone close to us suddenly. Well, Job's life is about to take a dramatic turn, and it occurs suddenly. He is attacked by the enemy of our souls, not just by one attack, but by two waves of attacks. But it is with these attacks that we are shown Job's integrity, Satan's persistence, and Job's patience. Now these attacks happened when everything seemed to be going along as usual. The author begins by reminding us of Job's picture-perfect life and everything seemed normal. It was just another day and Job's children were feasting, eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. Now Job was somewhere on his family's large ranching compound. He owned much land, cattle and other animals and Job and each of his sons had a house. Remember he was rich. And he was probably planning to offer sacrifices to the Lord following their feast when he is approached by four messengers in the first wave of attacks. And all four messengers brought messages that not even the strongest of men would be able to receive standing up. Remember, just prior to this, Satan was given permission to touch all of Job's possessions. So one by one, Satan does so. First, it was another day of farming when a messenger came to Job to tell him that as the oxen were plowing the fields, preparing to sow seed for the next harvest, and the donkeys were feeding beside them after carrying such heavy loads of harvest, the Sabians, these were Arabic nomads who spent their lives traveling, pillaging, and stealing livestock for survival, it says they fell upon them and took the oxen and donkeys and killed Job's servants with their swords. And the servant said, I alone have escaped to tell you. The hedge that was placed around Job to protect him has been lifted and Satan has been allowed to attack Job's possessions on his own property. Our homes are often viewed as a safe place, a safe haven. Imagine how you would feel if your safe space was ever violated by terrorists. But secondly, while this messenger was still speaking, another messenger came to Job and told him, the fire of God, which is a, a general way of speaking of lightning, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And again, this messenger says, I alone have escaped to tell you. Imagine the shock that this would have caused. You just had some of your animals stolen by terrorists who also killed some of your servants and now a natural disaster has burned up and killed the sheep and the shepherds who were tending the sheep. 
In insurance language, this is what is called an act of God. Because it is a freak, natural accident and out of your control. But that's not all. Thirdly, while that messenger was still speaking, another messenger came to Job and told him about another band of terrorists who have intruded his land. This time it was the Chaldeans who were also a group of nomads. This is the same group out of which God would eventually call Abraham. And this group seemed like they were experienced and they have done this sort of thing before as they strategically formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them. Then they struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And the messenger again says, I alone have escaped to tell you. Talk about something out of a a Western where you would expect Clint Eastwood's character to come out and to enact vengeance at this point. At least that's where my imagination goes. So at this point in our narrative, Job has been bankrupt. This great and rich man has been reduced to a pauper. We all love to hear the rags to riches story. But we seldom want to hear about the riches to rags story. His source of income, food, and clothing has been taken from him in one, or should I say, three fell swoops. But just as we would think he has endured enough, a fourth messenger came to Job and gave him the worst news yet. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Four times you hear this from the messengers. You begin to wonder about these four messengers at this point. Sounds like a conspiracy. But you know what? I think they resemble the four horsemen of Revelation. Who will bring nothing but judgment. And then they disappear. To leave Job all alone. And here is news of another judgment in the form of another natural disaster. It began with terrorists, then a natural disaster, to another group of terrorists, then another natural disaster that would take everything away from Job, except his wife, whom we will discover here in a bit. But at this point, you can't help but sympathize with Job. Job didn't just lose one child, he lost all ten of his children. Imagine the grief that would have come over him. It is hard enough to lose one child. Imagine all ten. What would be his response to God? Because it seems like he's being set up for failure here. But this is where Job's integrity would be revealed. Now, he didn't just shrug it all off and take it like a man. No. He would later say that God did not let him catch his breath. And there is what you call PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Imagine the sort of PTSD he would have experienced. Uh, Let's just say it would have been PTSD times four or better 
times 14. So how does Job respond? Well, you can picture it as each messenger approaches him with the the bad news. He slowly slumps, descending into a sitting position, whether on a chair or on the ground, because it says, then Job arose from where he was slumped and tore his robe. Uh, The robe was an outer cloak and it symbolized status and position in society. He was a distinguished man. And the tearing of that robe would symbolize grief. And he would shave his head to symbolize that he was in mourning and that he was identifying himself with those who died. And after all he has been bombarded with, Satan expects Job to curse God to his face. At this point, anyone of us would expect Job to curse God to his face. But instead, look at what it says. It says he fell on the ground and worshipped. His response was not to curse God, but to worship God. Because he recognizes that he is dust and one day he will die as well. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. He will take nothing from this world with him when he dies. He says something similar to what the author of Ecclesiastes says in 5.15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a truth that we often forget that often puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And there is this old saying from where my family is from, when people would argue over their differences. The saying would go something like this. It's not as humorous in the English. Uh, There is a bit of humor here. But the saying goes like this. We all end up in the hole in the ground. Which is to say... We all leave our differences behind in this world one day and it will no longer matter. And what Job is trying to say is not that he knows all the answers as to why he is suffering. He wasn't saying he fully understands the mystery behind what was happening to him. And he wasn't just trying to keep his composure here. Remember, he said this out of grief. He shaved his head. And remember, he fell to the ground, grieving and worshipped. It wasn't positive affirmations. He knew he had to worship. Yet he was still grieving. But what he was saying was that we can never resist a sovereign God. And the truth is, That God remains God. Even in our darkest moments. Many of you here are going through a dark moment as we speak. And what you need to hear. And your greatest source of comfort in this world. Is that God remains God. He does not change. 
and he hasn't left you behind. And he is there with you. So even in his darkest moment, he still found an occasion to praise God for who he is, not just for what he has done for Job. He has given him an abundance that he never deserved. God and his glory is more important than any of our earthly treasures or relationships, which he gave to us as gifts in the first place. He understood that even his children were a gift. Everything we have from God is a gift, and he decides when we will receive it, and he decides when it will be taken away. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of cursing God, he blessed God because God was to be his ultimate possession. He was saying with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And to Satan's dismay, it says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Would we have that same response in this situation here? Now, I believe we would all agree that this is more than enough suffering for one man to handle. Who would wish for any more suffering for one person? Well, Satan didn't believe this was enough. And Satan is a persistent creature. We see this as we transition from the first wave of Satan's attacks on Job to the royal courts of God. And as we move from one scene to another, we're not sure how much time has gone by, whether it was the same day or the next or the following week. But it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God, that is, the angels of God, came to present themselves before the Lord. We're back in the royal courts of God. And what happens here is almost a word-for-word repetition of what transpired back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. I'll let you read that on your own. But here there are a few additions and changes to the discourse. And notice, we are once again reminded that Satan is just another servant of God. Because he also had to present himself before the Lord to give him a progress report of all that he has done so far. And the Lord asked him the same question as he did before. From where have you come? And once again, Satan responds with the same vague and evasive half-truth for an answer. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He totally leaves out what he has done to Job so far. As if God didn't already know. He wants to downplay it. As if it wasn't enough or that it was nothing. He can handle more. So the Lord responds, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is the third time that Job is described this way. And the second time the Lord says this about Job to Satan. It must be really getting under Satan's skin at this point. But listen to what the Lord adds. 
He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God is telling Satan, see, you try your best, but my promises will still be fulfilled. I will still preserve for myself a remnant. He told him that Job remained a consistent believer even after all that Satan was allowed to unleash on him. And the Lord said, all of which was without reason. But although it was for no reason, we still get Satan's true motives behind the attacks here. God reveals it to us. Satan doesn't want to just take everything away from Job, but he wants to destroy Job. He wants him dead. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. We're not sure what this expression means, but whenever you are confused, context always helps because he explains all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So he was saying his possessions are important to him, but not as important as his own life. He was telling the Lord, go, touch his body, and he will curse you at that point. You took his possessions, but you haven't touched his body. See, Satan is acting like a philosopher here. He is making a distinction between what a man owns versus what a man is. Attack what a man is, and he will succumb to temptation. He was accusing Job of only loving God just so God wouldn't take his life. Again, Job could not worship God for no reason. God removed one hedge of protection and Satan was allowed to take all of Job's possessions and children. Now he is asking the Lord to remove another hedge of protection which protects his body and his life. And if God does that, then his piety will truly be tested and Job will be guaranteed to fail. Now, shockingly, the Lord agrees, but with limits. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So he could do whatever he wanted to Job, but he could not kill him. There were limits. Remember, Satan is a dog on a leash. He can't do anything to you without the Lord's permission. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and the scenery immediately changes back to where Satan leads the second wave of attacks and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now we do not know exactly what these sores were or which medical diagnosis to give Job, but we can say Job is in a miserable place. We can only presume that these were most likely open sores that covered his entire body, which were extremely painful and itchy. So he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. That is a rubbish dump or a heap that is always burning. This was probably to help give his skin some relief. So Job goes through immense physical suffering to go along with losing all his possessions and all of his children. Now, 
one thing to notice from this point on, there will be no mention of Satan. But just like the rest of Scripture, Satan was there in the background. And he often uses other characters to tempt God's people. Here we are introduced to another character. We are introduced to Job's wife. But here is just one more trial for Job. And we will see whether Job serves God or self. If you listen closely, you can hear Satan's voice as his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Now, who did she get that from? Was she in the royal courts of God overhearing the conversation between God and Satan? God is the one who said to Satan that Job still holds fast his integrity. But now Job's wife asks him, do you still hold fast your integrity? As if she was there and brought that conversation to bear on Job. After all you have been through, Job. Then she tells Job to do what Satan has been trying to get him to do. Curse God and die. She became a mouthpiece for Satan. Much like Peter, who tried to rebuke Jesus after he foretold his suffering, death, and resurrection. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. She was used much like Eve was used to tempt Adam. So Satan would war against his soul. But here, there will be different outcomes. Now, this text does not allow us to make any moral judgments on Job's wife. Uh, We tend to read this as if his wife was trying to get him to denounce God and sin against him out of malice and unbelief. But I believe a better reading of this would be that she was a grieving wife in distress over what was happening to him. And she wished that he would just give up and die. Cursing God would lead to death. It's kind of like borderline superstition. He would curse God and then he would be struck by lightning. That sort of thing. At least he would find some relief. Because listen to his response to her. If we read closely, he didn't call her a foolish woman. Uh, Foolishness in the Bible has to do with godlessness rather than something intellectual. Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He was saying that the way she was speaking does not fit her normal character. She was not acting as herself. Now what Job's wife needed to realize and what we need to realize is that the glory of God is more important than our worldly comforts. The glory of God is more important than our worldly comforts. She saw him suffering and said, he ought to just give up. There's no point in this. But his obedience to God was necessary despite what he was going through. Our obedience to God is necessary despite what we are going through. Our obedience to God is not conditional based on what God has given us or not given us. See, Job reminds his wife that everything we have is a gift and that God is not obligated to give anything to us at all. And he asks her a rhetorical question. 
Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? That is, shall we receive gifts that make us feel good? That make us feel better? But shall we not receive gifts that may harm us? Gifts that will test our limits? To receive here is speaking of patiently accepting what God is giving us under his loving providence, knowing that he knows best. And again it says, in all this Job did not sin with his lips. Satan was wrong in his prediction. Job recognized that God is the author of all things and he is worthy of worship in good times and in bad times. Much like when James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yet the one question that is probably running through your mind is still why? What is the point of all this? What is the point of putting Job through all this suffering? It is really summarized in one point and many subpoints. Uh, the point is that God is to be worshipped, period. God is to be worshipped no matter what anyone is going through. No matter how much anyone is suffering, God is worthy of worship. Think about it. Have we ever given God an ultimatum? If I don't sense comfort from God today, then I'm not going to church. I'm not going to worship unless he does what I want him to do. Beloved, people give ultimatums to God every Sunday. They'll only worship God if he meets their needs. Some of us only worship when things are good. Others of us worship only when things are bad. But God deserves worship in good and bad times. Every day, every hour, every minute. God is to be worshipped. Not just because he saved us and not just because of all of the good things he has done for us. He ought to be worshipped for all of that, but not just because of all of that. God is to be worshipped even if he never saved anyone. God is to be worshipped for no other reason than the fact that he is God. Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, that is, people who will worship him simply for who he is, not just for what he has done for us. God is always and infinitely worthy of our worship. And the good news is that he will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. God will preserve a people for himself who will worship him. Because the other question is why does Satan want to destroy Job? Because he wants to destroy the plan of God's redemption. Satan was able to seduce and tempt Adam, so now he thinks he can do the same to all of Adam's children after him. So Satan attacking Job is his way of attacking God and his promise that he will raise up an offspring who will serve him. Because God promised to preserve a remnant 
who will crush the head of the serpent. And here it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips or charge God with wrong. In this, Satan is defeated by Job. Ironically, this sinner who doesn't deserve grace is saved by grace. Job is triumphant where Adam, who was created upright, he was created a true worshiper of God, but he fell. So this is proof that God would one day provide a righteousness greater than Adam's to secure the redemption of his people. And he would do this through the second Adam. See, through Job's patient suffering, enduring Satan's malicious attacks, he seals God's promise that he would one day grant eternal life to his people through the Christ who is yet to come. Job's victory becomes assurance for God's people that we will be redeemed by one who is greater than Job. Because when we consider our own suffering, and I can only speak for those who I know, not for the entire world, but for most of us here, our suffering would pale in comparison to what Job goes through here. And when Job considers his own suffering, his own suffering would pale in comparison to the suffering of the suffering servant. Job's suffering is just a dim reflection of the suffering of not just the great man among many, but the greatest man who has ever walked this earth, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, who did not enjoy the riches and wealth of this world, who did not even have a place to lay his head. He would live a life of humiliation compared to the place that he came from, from the bosom of his father, enjoying everlasting fellowship and glory with God, to one day being stripped naked, scourged, flesh torn apart and body nailed to a cross where he would be forsaken by his father and left all alone to suffer. Jesus walked his entire life the way of Job for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Also, let us not neglect the fact that Satan still attacks believers today. Just as Jesus told Peter, he tells us, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There are many who use modern day psychology to write off Martin Luther's battles with Satan. Uh, Luther is famously known for throwing an inkwell at the wall, uh, leaving a mark. Uh, actually, I think it may have left a hole, uh, thinking that he was throwing it at the devil himself. And his battles were usually over the issue of his own salvation. Now, this may sound odd to our scientific and intelligent age, but let us not write his experiences off as if he was just off his rocker. Because we believe Satan is real. And he is still prowling around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. 
Just because the Bible doesn't use his name often doesn't mean he is not there in the background. Peter says this in an exhortation. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christ himself will strengthen you, even in your days ahead. Christ, who told Peter that Satan would sift him like wheat, also said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, even in the midst of your suffering today, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your loss. Christ prays for you at the right hand of the Father. And He is here, present with you. And He sympathizes with our weaknesses. For He too mourned when He was here on earth. He wept. He grieved. He was sorrowful to the point of death. But it is through Christ alone who experienced all these things for you. That we have the strength to resist the temptation to curse God and die. Because the major difference between us, which I would include Job, and Jesus, is that on the cross, Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Through his death, he destroyed the works of the devil. He took away his power and his voice from the royal courts of God. They are no longer heard there. Satan may still accuse you and say all sorts of evil against you, but God does not listen because you are covered by the blood of Christ. You stand justified before God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today he may still attack your bodies. He may attack your life even. But that is only because he has no power over your souls. Listen to John in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. That victory is ours in Christ. Let us remember that as we go about our week. Amen.